pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. I'm going to ask you to take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of Proverbs this morning, to the book of Proverbs. And uh, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter uh, 5, 6, and 7 today. Uh, we'll be bouncing between those three chapters, so uh, find your place as we uh, finish up in our series that we've entitled The Seven Deadly Sins. And uh, we've invested the last two months focusing our time and attention on seven particular sins, not because they're any worse than any of the other ones, but the early church trying to find a way to help uh, the believers of their day without the help of Scripture, because uh, there wasn't a lot of Scriptures being circulated at that time, wanted to find ways to help uh, Christians at that time uh, know uh, their areas of, of weakness. And so they took seven sins that they believed were the sources of all sins and wanted to make sure that uh, people were aware of the heartache and the pain that can come uh, from uh, engaging and entertaining those types of sins. And I hope that during this time, uh, I've heard from a lot of people how convicting this series has been, and I hope that that's been the case. But I also want to remind you, as we'll learn at the very end, because we'll do some closing thoughts on the series as we finish this series up, that we are all sinners. And we are, we're sinners that are in need of a Savior. And uh, hopefully as you've seen the, uh, the areas of weakness in your life and the struggles that you've had and the areas of, uh, of sin uh, that seemingly have found victory over and over again, that you would be reminded over and over again that you have a Savior who went to the cross, who died for that sin, who nailed that sin to the cross once and for all, that you and I can find victory uh, and blessing in, in this life. And today we're going to finish up this series. Next week we're going to start a series on the life and times of Joseph from the book of Genesis and uh, looking forward to what God's going to teach us through that. But today we finish up and we deal with a sensitive subject, a subject that um, I understand and and uh, know to be an issue that impacts many people today, both male and female. Today we deal with the issue of lust. Uh, but before we do, I want to take some time and pray. And uh, I know we've got uh, junior high on up and parents, if you feel like maybe this subject matter uh, might be uh, uh, too soon for maybe one of your junior hires. We can uh, have them join up with our children's worship time. And so during the prayer, if you feel that that would be an important thing, we can uh, accommodate in that way. But let's go to a time of prayer. Father God, we come before you, and I pray as I have throughout this series that, uh, Lord, you would uh, impact our lives uh, through the teaching of your word, that we would incline our ears to hear what your word has to say about who we are, about our sin about our struggles, and about how your word, and through the modeling of Jesus' perfect life, that we might find an answer uh, to our sin. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling, that are trying to wade through this life uh, in bondage to this particular sin of lust. And Lord, I pray that they might find hope today, that they might be able to find victory as a result. So Lord, I pray you would teach us uh, what it means uh, to turn away from lustful thoughts and lustful desires and to turn to the loving arms of our God who has given us all that we need for life and for faith. And we ask your blessing on our time in Christ's name. Amen. Well, David was the great giant slayer, wasn't he? Uh, he uh, fought uh, Goliath, eight, nine feet tall. When nobody else would fight Goliath, David, a young boy, would stand toe-to-toe with the great giant. And he would do so and find victory. And it was amazing, all of the accolades and all of the response that people gave him for his victory over this great giant named Goliath. 
But years later, David would come toe-to-toe with another giant. And the great giant slayer must have been all ready and all prepared for the battle that was going to ensue. Instead of, though, finding victory, David, the giant slayer, found defeat. You see, the Bible tells us that David one day, one evening, in fact, uh, was walking along the roof of his palace. And he was looking at the grand city that he was a part of leading and probably a part of building. As he looked over Jerusalem that that evening, he saw a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. And, And unlike his fight with Goliath, David was unprepared. David was ill prepared for the task before him. Instead of having the weapons of war like he did in facing Goliath, he went in unprepared for this battle. And he would find himself falling to the giant of lust in his life. And how many giant slayers have we seen who have fought great battles in other arenas fall prey to the giant of lust? And this morning, I want to speak to that giant. That giant that in many ways is alive and well in the lives of so many of us. It was true even 3,000 years ago when the book of Proverbs was written. Even though uh, there was no technology at the time, no cable television, no internet, uh, the people recognized and knew the help that they needed with dealing with sexual immorality. In fact, the one-eighth of the book of Proverbs is dedicated to purity and the issue of sexual morality. And that comes as a result of our need to hear what God's word has to say with regards to the subject matter. In fact, for three chapters, we're going to hear a very open and honest and quite candid, even some might say risque, words from Solomon, the wisest of all men, who in some ways, like his father, struggled to deal with the issue of lust in his life. In fact, he was a man who had 300 wives and 700 concubines. And now is writing at the end of his life, knowing that all that he had pursued in his young age was meaningless, utterly meaningless, begins to write down what is a foundation for all of us. He writes wise words to his sons. And in doing so, begins to address the issue of lust in the life of the Christian and how we can find God's blessing amidst such a most difficult of battles. Simply put, the issue of lust, uh, what sociologists would say, is the sexual buzz within us. But to define it in a more uh, biblical terminology, instead of just a simple humanistic one, uh, let's look to the slide and fill this in in your outline. Lust is a willfully allowed, pleasurable gratification of wrongfully directed sexual desire that takes place deep within us. Now that's a mouthful. But I want you to understand this morning that we need to break down this issue of lust and define it properly so that we understand biblically what the Word of God has to say about it. First of all, in that first phrase, is it's willfully allowed. What that means is lust is something that you and I choose. It's not something that that we can put on someone else's doorstep, if you will. If we struggle with lust, whether it's fantasy or or physical lust or whatever manifestation that lust plays in our lives, we cannot blame others as a result. Listen, you cannot blame the devil. You cannot say, because the devil made me do it, that's why I'm lusting. No, you you can't say that. Uh, The Bible makes it clear that if we resist the devil, then the devil must flee from us. And so while the devil may tempt, and while the devil may put entrapments around us, We can flee and resist him, and he has to run away from us in that way. 
We can't blame the nice-looking people around us. We can't blame the pretty girl in our class or the nice-looking guy in the office. We can't blame them on what they, how they dress or, or, or the type of signals they give off. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that sin uh, comes as a result of us being dragged away by our own desires. So it's not someone else's fault that you can blame this issue of lust on. It's, again, not because of someone else's good looks. One other way that we blame in this blame game of lust is we blame God. We begin to say, God, you made me this way. You created me. How often are we hearing now in our society that people say, the reason why I'm this way is because God designed me this way. Well, the Bible makes it clear that God has designed us, male and female, and and he has designed us to live out sexuality in a way that is uh, conforming to the, the wills and plans of God. And God, yes, has given us sexual feelings. He's given us the ability for sexual capacity. But we are to put, like all other of our emotions, under control. God has given us a great ability to be angry people. We have uh, seen where fits of anger have caused people to do all manner of things. Does that mean because God's given us the capacity to do something that therefore we are supposed to? No, God's given us guidelines. And we can't blame God that he's given us certain feelings, certain desires, and then uh, do them and say, well, God gave me the opportunity. No, the Bible says it's the heart that's deceitfully sick. Who can understand it? That it's the inside of a man or a woman that defiles them, not what is on the outside. We can't blame anybody else but ourselves. It's willfully allowed. Number two, it's pleasurable. It's pleasurable. Whether you want to admit it or not, uh, the issue of lust and sexual contact is something uh, that is pleasurable. Now, it was created from God to us to enjoy. It was a gift that God gave to the marriage relationship that would separate all of the relationships that we have. I don't mean to be funny about this in any way, but the idea of sexual contact within the marriage is what separates the marriage relationship outside of all other friendships or relationships. I have a lot of friends with a lot of great guys. i got friendships with a lot of great ladies. But the thing that separates that relationship and my relationship with my wife, Amanda, is the Bible makes it clear that in the marital relationship there should be an allowance for nakedness and no shame. And so God has said, listen, this is going to cement this relationship into a relationship like no other relationship in in any other uh, venue. And so that's why sexual contact and sexual relationships outside of marriage are so disastrous. Because it's cementing something that was never supposed to be put together. And so when you cement things that aren't supposed to be put together, you inevitably will break them apart. And I will tell you, it is hard to take that which is cemented and break it apart. It's going to come with a lot of hammering and a lot of broken pieces. And so the Bible makes it clear. Now, now I wish, if I was God, and I know I play this game as many of you probably do, if I was God, I would have done things differently. You know, this issue of lust, it would have been an easy issue to deal with. What I would have done if I was God is I wouldn't have given the opportunity for sexual capacity until the man and the woman are pronounced husband and wife. Not too long ago, I was up on this stage marrying a young man and young woman, and I wish somewhere in the marriage ceremony that I would have been able to say, and now I pronounce you husband and wife. Now turn around. And on their back, somewhere between their shoulder blades, I would flip the switch. And I flip the switch, and the guy looks at the girl and says, Hey, you come here often? I didn't recognize you. Hey. No. 
somewhere around 12, 11, 12, 13 years of age, God allows that switch to be turned on by, uh, by him for every individual. And that comes at a different time, but, but here's the problem. We don't hear about a lot of 11, 12, or 13-year-olds getting married, right? And so God has said, you know what? I'm going to give you the capacity, but I'm going to tell you that you are going to find victory even if there's not an outlet right now for all these hormones and all of these desires that are, that are foaming up, if you will, inside of you, that you're going to have to wait until marriage. And God's done that. And I'm not sure exactly why he's done that. He's got a reason and his ways are higher than my ways. But it doesn't mean that because God gives us the desires that therefore I have to live them out. But listen to this. No matter whether it's perverse or pure, sexual gratification is pleasurable. There's no way around it. And that's one of the problems that that the devil advertises is that it is pleasurable whether you do it God's way or another. Notice it's wrongfully directed sexual desire. In the proper confines of a marriage relationship, lust cannot be found. A man, a husband can't lust after his wife. A wife can't lust after her husband because that is a place, that is an arena where that relationship is uh, without sin. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter uh, 12 that the marriage bed cannot be defiled. I'm sorry, it's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. The marriage bed cannot be defiled. And so we need to recognize that lust within the confines of of a uh, monogamous marriage relationship cannot be found. A husband loves his wife even in the sexual realm. A wife loves her husband in the sexual realm without sin. This is wrongfully directed lust. Wrongfully directed uh, sexual desire. So it's taking what God has said is found in the marriage relationship... And it's taking it out of the marriage relationship and taking all that God devoted to this one relationship and says, well, I'm going to have this uh, with uh, my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my fiancé or something else less than a husband or a wife. And the problem is, is while it still may be pleasurable, it's out of place. British theologian C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, lust is a lot like what you would see in a fireplace. You see, marriage is the proper place for that fire. When you have a fire in a fireplace in your living room, everything's wonderful. You enjoy the heat. You enjoy the crackling of the fire. You enjoy the ambiance that comes from that fire in its proper place. But C.S. Lewis says lust is taking that which finds its proper place in the fireplace and taking it out of its safe place where it can be enjoyed and putting it in the middle of the family room. That same fire, those same embers that were used for the enjoyment in the fireplace have now been taken out of their proper place and put in a place where only destruction and disaster will incur. The same fire, different result. And so we need to recognize this morning that lust is taking that which God has given for a proper place in a proper moment in a proper time and taking it for your own selfish reasons unto yourself and it is taking the fire out of the fireplace and onto the floor and only again where disaster and destruction will await finally we need to recognize that it happens deep within us and this is important because i think that uh, while the sexual revolution took place in the 1960s i think there's a new sexual revolution taking place and what it is is it's surrounding this idea of our sexual identity We'd hear about that being talked about all the time now. What is our sexuality? And I want you to know that the Bible makes it clear that our sexuality runs deep. 
It's not just physical. Listen, our sexuality is not based on a bunch of nerve endings on different parts of your body. That's not your sexuality. It runs deeper than that. It goes to the very core of who we are. That's why our sexuality is a deeply and incredibly personal issue. And so we've got individuals who, who are struggling with their sexuality. And they're saying, but it's who I am. It's how I identify myself. And that's why these struggles with sexuality are so difficult to deal with. For some of them, it's wrong thoughts. For others, it's pornography. Still others, it's the essential entertainment or literature. For some, the issue of lust is a heterosexual one. For others, it's homosexual lust. For singles and young people, it's fornication. That's the sexual sin for those that aren't married. For those who are married, when we start lusting, we start going into the realm of adultery. And that affects us all. You see, the issue of lust isn't a guy issue, but it's male and female alike. It's not a young person issue, for it impacts old and young alike. Now some will say right away, come on, Tim. It's church, and we don't need to be speaking about such things. Let me remind you, the Bible doesn't skirt around this issue. In fact, the Bible says over and over again that this is a problem, and it was a problem 3,000 years ago as it is today. Now, maybe it's because technology has gotten better, that maybe we see it more. Maybe it's easier because of the Internet and the television and other devices that uh, the devil can bombard us with images and scenarios like never before. Have you noticed how much sex is used and lust is used to sell things? It sells cars, it sells cheeseburgers, clothing, potato chips, deodorant, web hosting companies. Because we deeply believe that if we consume these products, we'll be sexier individuals. And at the end of the day, we think that 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 that's the end game. Because we're sexual creatures and, and we long for this. We long for this attention and we want this. And so advertisers know that if we can get people thinking about sex, that they will consume these things because they think in the end something better will come as a result. Now for my parents back in the day, it was easier for them to keep their young boys pure. The only thing my mom really had to worry about was on long car rides, worrying about the billboard on the side of the, inter, the, side of the interstate. And she would always, and it was always with great flair, would tell us to look the other way because there was a deer running and wanted us to see it. Look at the deer. Look out that window. And she was able to keep us from it. Well, I, I got smart enough to it that knew what she was trying to do. My brother still is looking for the deer. <laughs> But that was the enemy in my day. If you came upon issues of, of pornography that would feed your lust, it was hard to do. It was hard to do. A lot of us didn't have the kind of uh, accessibility with television, and quite frankly, our television was tame in many ways. But things have gotten a whole lot worse, and it's because of another superhighway, another interstate called the Internet. And it's created one of the greatest enemies when it comes to fighting lust. Now, I have no doubt that God put in the hearts of men the idea of creating the Internet. I believe that with all my heart. There's not a technological advance in human history that God did not uh, author in the minds and hearts of people. And God is using the Internet in ways to advance his kingdom like never before. 
But just like with every great invention and creation of God, the devil comes and he uses it to thwart the will and plan of God. And God has created the internet for our good and for the help of mankind, but the devil has used it to try to destroy. And boy, he's doing a good job, isn't he? The internet, on the internet, pornography now, because of the internet, is a $97 billion industry globally. $13 billion of that comes from the United States alone. 12% of all internet sites, that's more than 27 million, are dedicated to pornography. 2.5 billion emails a day are pornographic in nature. 2.5 billion emails a day. 25% of all search engine requests each day, whether Bing, AOL, Google, or Yahoo, are pornographic in nature. So that means, to put that in perspective, grandma's looking on the internet to find that German potato salad recipe. Grandpa's looking looking to try to find how how to fix the tractor, okay? Mom's wanting to find how to fix the shades in the family room, and everybody else is looking at pornography. This is crazy. 70% of all 18 to 24-year-old men visit pornographic sites in a typical month. 66% of men in their 20s and 30s also report being regular users of pornography. Now you say, wait a minute, Tim, those are lousy statistics. Well, sure they are. What about the church? Surveying evangelical churches, uh, Josh McDowell and his ministries uh, a couple years ago put on the largest uh, set of surveys and studies uh, on the issue of lust and pornography in this more specifically. He shared some of these findings at what was many called a drop-the-mic presentation at uh, last year's Founders Week. They said at Moody Church you could have heard a pin drop. A grandfather talking about the great struggle that is going on within the churches. And this is what his study found. 70% of Christian men and 47% of Christian women admit to struggling with pornography on a daily basis. Now you think, well, Tim, that's a lousy sample. So let's reduce it. Let's cut it in half. That means 35% of men and 23% of women who call themselves Christians struggle with this. 48% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women in the study admitted to having an addiction to pornography. Now you say, well, Tim, I don't know what churches those people are a part of, but not Village Bible Church. We're a great church. We're a holy church. We're a church with holy people. Let me tell you something. We are an average evangelical church. Here's how I know. Our measurables tell us we're average. Our giving per capita is average. Our church attendance, meaning how many times an individual of our church attends on a monthly basis, is average. Our service involvement is average. I know, I love Village Bible Church, but we're an average evangelical church. We are filled with average evangelicals, and that tells us these numbers should scare the living daylights out of us. Because it means there's an epidemic, not only in the evangelical church, But in Village Bible Church, we have, as was said in Apollo 13, a problem. We have a problem and we need a solution. It seems as if in this lust-dominated world that we're losing the battle. And we need help. And God in his great love 
has provided for us a place where our sexuality can be lived out under the lordship of Jesus Christ, where we can find fulfillment in him, not our sexual desires. But in order to do that, we need God to speak to us. And aren't you glad that he dedicated three chapters in a book dedicated to wisdom to speak to such subject matter? Notice in Proverbs chapter 5, let's look to the text. Let's, now that we know the problem, let's hear God's solution. The Proverbs, which is written by, by Solomon, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, articulates the following. It begins like this, my son, in verse 1 of chapter 5, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Let's stop there. What are we to do? We are to thrust ourselves, we are to throw ourselves, we are to be attentive to wisdom. God, by his grace, has given us his word, and the only thing that God says is, listen, I've got the answer, but you've got to listen. You've got to get the wax out of your ears, and you've got to be attentive, and, and incline yourself, stretch yourself, so that you are close to wisdom every step of the way. What God is telling us is if you will just listen to what I have to say, all will go well with you. And so we need to listen. And notice what the Bible says. There are three things I want to draw out from what the Bible says. First of all, the Bible makes it clear that immorality promises stuff to deceive us. So he says, be careful of the promises that immorality advertises to deceive you. It's advertising stuff, but it's all smoke and mirrors. Notice in the book of Proverbs, immorality is going to be spoken of in a feminine way. Notice verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Let's stop there. The Bible makes it clear, especially in the book of Proverbs, that immorality is always a beautiful woman called the prostitute. One who is seemingly available to take care of every one of your desires, but listen, at a cost. See, the Bible's really clear. It says, listen, prostitutes are known to do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want when you're with them, but it will always cost you. So it is with lust. Lust, you can do whatever you, whatever your heart's desires. You can go any place you want without any need of technology. But it will cost you. Notice, it advertises, first of all, as being sweet and smooth. Verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. You couldn't get sweeter than honey or smoother than oil in Old Testament times. Now, both of those, by the way, are spoken of and used for good in the Old Testament. There was a place for honey. There was a place for oil. Honey was a delicacy. Oil was used to set apart kings as they would be anointed by oil. It was used for healing. And so this advertisement was that it's sweet and good, it's a delicacy... And it's smooth. This is something uh, that uh, heals the bones. But the problem is, is the wise old man Solomon says, but wait a minute, be careful. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 7. Just turn a page over to Proverbs 7, starting in verse 10. 
Proverbs 7, verse 10. And you're going to see all kinds of advertisements. Notice what this woman says. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. She's now in the street. She's now in the market. She's now at every corner. She lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens with from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home, for he has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon, meaning next month, he will come home. So, here's what the woman advertises. She says, listen, I've got everything ready. Listen, the candles are lit. The music's playing. The bed's made. I'm wearing all the right stuff. And what the prostitute is doing is what the Bible says the devil does so well. He masquerades as an angel of light. And so he, he paints this picture that everything is perfect. But all the while there's problems. So she's advertising. Notice she's very acting very religious. I've offered my sacrifices. I've paid my vows. I've got everything ready for you. So all I need to focus in on is you. Lust advertises that it's all about you. Your needs, your desires, your wants. But notice there's some warning signs that lust gives. She says, come, let us take our fill of love till morning, verse 18. Let us delight ourselves with love. By the way, my husband's not home. Hint, hint. He'll be back soon. I'm sure he's going to be real happy to find out what his wife's been doing, right? Stay away from there, boy. But he doesn't. Because every time lust gets involved, it starts out smooth and sweet. But notice, lust will always end being sour and sharp. Sour and sharp. Notice back in chapter 5, so let's go back to where we were, chapter 5. It says that her speech is smoother than oil, verse 3. But verse 4 of chapter 5, but in the end she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So let's look at those two words. Wormwood is used only eight times in all the scripture. And it was an herb that was used uh, for medicinal purposes. That in small amounts would be bitter at the taste. But if you got too much of it, you would die. And so this guy's about to consume way too much wormwood. He's going to end his life. He's going to be dead. So it is with immorality. Just a little doesn't seem right, but it's that exhilaration, right? It's that exhilaration of doing something forbidden. Oh, you feel it, but that, that bitterness starts out kind of sweet. And you kind of get beyond the bitter taste, but you keep taking and taking, and little do you know it's getting more and more bitter, more and more poisonous as it goes along. 
By the way, it's a double-edged sword. It's only used twice, that phrase, double-edged sword. The the New Testament talks about the uh, Bible being a double-edged sword. The Word of God is cuts like a two-edged sword. What that means is that it cuts physically, and it cuts to the very soul. And immorality, while the Word of God does it in a good way, like a surgeon, immorality cuts like a machete. And it cuts physically, and it cuts down to the very soul. Some here this morning have experienced the great pain of the sword of lust and immorality in their life that has cut deep and left scars. Notice what the the text says. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, that is the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. What it means is that she's going nowhere good. She wants to destroy Turn back to uh, chapter 7 for a moment. Chapter 7, verses uh, 21 through 23. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Man, he's ready to go. He's all excited. He's going to get what he's been looking for. And all at once, verse 23 says... He follows her. That's verse 22, I'm sorry. Verse 22 says, All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into the snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. I want you to recognize this morning, that when you play with the lusts of your heart, and the lust of the flesh... It'll start out smooth, and it will end very badly. Because the devil who's a lying, prowling around, looking to whom he can devour, is a sniper in the tall weeds of lust, waiting to take you out. He's waiting to destroy you. And you're too busy focused on your desires, you're too focused, as I have been, on my own wants and my own pleasures, that I don't even see it coming. And before I know it, the sharp pain of that arrow is piercing my body. And it's taking my life. Never forget, immorality starts out sweet. But before you know it, immorality will come for the kill. And it does. It ends sour. Notice the path that it leads to. The writer helps us out. And he says, listen, there's a path that this is going to lead to. And it's going to lead to disaster. Solomon understood that a couple verses on the subject weren't good enough. That's like taking a water pistol to hell. It ain't going to work. So he shares more on the subject. And with candid and descriptive word, he articulates the danger of indulging in sexual immorality. Turn a page to uh, Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. And I'm going to ask you a couple questions and you help me answer the question. Uh, Genesis, uh, Genesis. Proverbs chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 27. Solomon asked this question. Help me answer if it's what the answer is. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burned? No, he can't. Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? No. So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. The idea here is you can't hold fire close to you and not get burned. So if you think that you can play around with immorality, that something isn't going to happen. There's going to be consequences. You are going to get 
burnt. You can't play with this stuff. So we need to recognize this morning that there are consequences. Well, what are some of the consequences? Go back to chapter 5. Told you we'd be bouncing back and forth. Chapter 5. And now, O sons, verse 7, listen to me and do not depart from my words from my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go into the house of the foreigner. Now let's stop there. What's the first thing that will happen? The first path to disaster begins with disgrace. Verse 9. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. How many times have we seen verse 9 played out because people can't get a handle on their lust? How many of us have seen over and over again men and women in high positions of authority, whether it be politicians, whether it be pastors, who have lost everything because of their lust? Right now we're watching a a former congressman from New York, Anthony Weiner, who was well-liked in his community, thought of very highly in his community, was married to a very attractive and and, and, uh, uh, wonderful wife. They were a couple that in one of the New York magazines said that they were one of the uh, most prestigious of couples. And now numerous times... His immorality has gotten him into trouble. He's had to hold now two different press conferences to talk about his lust. And now is facing jail time because his lust led him to interact with underage girls. We've seen it over and over again. How many high-profile pastors from high-profile churches that have had to give up all that they have, all that they've worked for, all that God's people have helped to grow and to build because of lust. What a disgrace. How many of us have lost the ability to minister because we have fallen morally? The opportunities lost due to our sin. The disgrace isn't only for the perpetrator, by the way. It affects those who are closest to them. Think long and hard about the impact that your sin can have in the lives of others around you. While it's not a 100% deterrent in my own life, when sin and temptation comes, I I find myself going around in my head, well, what will Amanda say? What will this do to my three boys? How would I feel if I had to share this to the church? What am I going to think when I have to tell my mom and dad what's happened? My brother, my in-laws, my friends. You see, had David gone through the ramifications of his sin, he never would have slept with Bathsheba. He would have said, it's not worth it. Because of the disgrace that, that would come on my life. I don't want any of that. I don't care how beautiful she is. I don't care how hot and bothered I am. I'm not going there because it's not worth it. 
And how many of us have fallen and lived with the disgrace of past failures because our lust got out of control? It causes disgrace. Notice verse 11. The Bible says that sexual immorality can bring forth disease. Verse 11. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Scholars believe that what what Solomon is talking about is the issue of sexually transmitted diseases and, and, and venereal diseases that come as a result of sexual immorality. Yes, they were around 3,000 years ago. And what he's saying is be careful. Be careful, my sons, because you play around with this stuff and you just like holding fire next to your chest, you're going to get burned and you're going to carry the fire of this immorality that will burn you and scar you for the rest of your lives. And, and let me tell you something. Today we are seeing it with, in epic proportions. The Center for Disease Control says that 50% of 18 to 25-year-old kids are carrying around a sexually transmitted disease. That's not, you know, uh, a church group. That's a Center for Disease Control. Look it up. They call it a pandemic. Many of them not knowing they are carriers of it until it's too late. As a result of these diseases, they carry the chances of certain cancers uh, in massive, uh, skyrocketing proportion. As a result, they say that the immune system is damaged. It makes you susceptible to all manners of illnesses and ailments. While the Bible makes it clear that sexual sin is no greater in the eyes of God than any other, Paul says that sexual sins are greater because we sin against our own body. We literally become the enemy of our own vessels, our own body. And he's right. But before you think, I'm safe, listen, that's why I don't do anything physically. That's why my lust stays up here or in here. I, I keep it in my, with my eyes and not other parts of my body. Recognize... That just because maybe you're lusting, not physically, that you're okay, understand that it doesn't just corrupt the body, but it corrupts the mind. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I mean, I couldn't have planned it any better. Two weeks ago, Pamela Anderson, vixen, bombshell, Baywatch lifeguard, on the cover of Playboy magazine numerous times, comes out and says, pornography is destroying the human soul. Now, a lot of people, I probably would have a good argument that she's probably the wrong person to be talking about it, is seeing the great epidemic. David Cameron, the prime minister of Great Britain, called the issue of pornography the cancer the greatest cancer facing our children today. Because it corrupts the mind. A medical report was given some some years, just this last year, uh, with regards to uh, uh, an issue that's facing Japanese men in Japan, young Japanese men. And they found out that the greatest users of ED medication are Japanese men 18 to 25. And they've made the correlation because of the high use of pornography. That the the attraction to a real life woman isn't enough. 
we've got a problem. We've got a problem. And the problem is, is we have fallen prey to this idea that our lust and our desires is okay. And because of it, it's creating all kinds of issues. And listen, even the secular world is taking notice. And what we hear is from a book 3,000 years old here in the book of Proverbs. is saying we knew this was a problem long before they ever saw it. Disappointment comes, verses 12 through 14. And you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Here is the lament of a man who's saying, I wish I would have listened. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come into my uh, office and tell me how their life has been dramatically um, changed because of their sin. And they've said, Tim, I wish I would have listened. I wish I would have seen the warning signs. Some of us are screaming on the inside because of of, uh, disappointment we've had because of decisions we've made. Wishing we could go back to that moment. Wishing we could go back to that place and that time. And instead of saying yes to our bodies, instead of saying yes to our pleasures, that we would have said no. That young person who allows themselves to go too far with their boyfriend or girlfriend who has to now explain to a future spouse what has been done. The sorrow of a spouse having to explain to their significant other why they're caught in porn. The devastation of an affair and the damage it brings to a marriage and to a family. That moment that you wish you could have back. The proverb writer says, why didn't I listen? Why didn't I incline my ear to the truth of scripture? But sadly it's too late. Verse 9. Verse 9 says that when those moments come, you will give your years to the merciless. The devil doesn't care. He's giddy over your destruction. So how do we protect ourselves? Notice the protection against immorality involves certain disciplines. In verse 12, he says, how I hated discipline. Discipline's the answer. Godly discipline. It's at this point in the sermon, you should feel pretty lousy. Here's this passion deep with inside all of us, and when I pursue it, it will consume me. Thanks for the great uplifting message, Pastor Tim. But let me remind you, that's not all what Solomon says. He leaves us with truth that transforms our lives and our society if we will only listen. And it's as simple as ABC. Number one, avoid immorality at all costs. Verse eight. Verse eight of chapter five. Keep your way far from her. The New Testament tells us when sexual immorality comes, we should flee. It's the only sin that it says, in essence, to just run away from it. Not try to stand against it. It says run. Literally, the word in the Greek language for flee is fugo, which I like because it reminds me of you go. And so when immorality comes your way, when lust starts knocking at your door, you don't stand there, you don't look through the peephole, you don't ask who is it, you run. 
Literally, it means vanish, get lost, seek safety by flight. You don't stand around, you don't try to resist it, you don't tip your uh, toe in the waters, you get out of there. We're going to see this in a couple weeks when Joseph is uh, pursued by Potiphar's wife. He ran. It's better to lose some conveniences or some technology or some entertainment or even a relationship than to lose your soul. You avoid it at all costs. B, uh, build, avoid, and then build a good marriage. God wants you to have the privilege to fulfill a sexual desire within you. Then to do so, God says the place to find that is in a monogamous, heterosexual marriage relationship. That's what he says in the book of Proverbs. Notice verses 15 through 17. He tells us that this marriage, a good marriage, is an exclusive one. It involves two people. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone. Let your fountain be blessed. What in the world is he talking about? Fountains and waters, springs. He tells us in verse 18. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of a wicked ensnare him and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Let's just stop there for a moment. The marriage relationship that God has enabled a sexual relation to take place is an exclusive one. Husband and wife for a lifetime. But it also is a relationship that the Bible makes clear is to be exhilarating. Exclusive and exhilarating. Every married couple should ask that question today. Is my marriage exclusive? Praise God if it is. And if it's not, you better get there really quick. Is it exhilarating? Some of you right now are living lifeless, cold marriages. And you think you're honoring God. You're not. God wants, whether you're in the honeymoon stage of your life or in the twilight of your marriage, for it to be an exhilarating marriage. Listen to how he declares it. That you will delight in it. That you'll be intoxicated with her love. That you'll rejoice in the wife of your youth. That her body and his body will be one that will fill you at all times with delight. Read the Song of Solomon, a whole book dedicated to the sexual intimacy between a husband and wife that brings great joy to them both. Not just when you're young, but when you are old in age. Christian marriage, listen, should be the trophy of what redemptive sexuality should look like. But sadly, for many of us, it's not. Our young people, our sons and daughters should look at the relationship that we have with our spouses and say, that's worth waiting for. By the grace of God, I pray that our marriages here at Village Bible Church will be that, that we'll commit to that. And we want to teach you and help you and empower you to do that. 
so that we can delight in these things, we can find an avenue to live out our sexuality, and so that we will not commit sexual immorality, as the book of 1 Corinthians says. But maybe you're not married yet. Maybe God hasn't brought that certain someone, or maybe God's given you the, the gift of singleness. What are you to do? See, commit to obedient living. Verses 21 through 23, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly is led astray. God wants you to place yourself and your sexual passions under his lordship. To serve him with your passions and desires. To allow God the privilege... To tell you when, where, and how you will live out those desires. For some it will mean chastity and celibacy for a season. For others it may mean those things for life. For some it will mean getting married instead of burning with passion. God is examining our ways and my prayer is that he will see me and you my friends living lives that commit each and every day unto the Lord and not for our passions. And when we fall, and we will fall, he'll see us as contrite and humble, eager to seek his restoration and forgiveness, remembering that Jesus is the only one who can cast any stones at you and I, because he's the only one who was tempted and didn't sin. But instead of condemning us, Jesus forgives, and he cleanses, and nails our sexual sins to the cross. And he says, no more will they be held against us. No more will they keep us in bondage. But he lifts us up from the dust. And he says, go and sin no more. Thanks be to God and his word. Now, before I close this series, let me remind you of a couple truths and we will close our time. We have spent seven weeks talking about sin. Seven weeks of hammering that we are indeed sinners. Let me remind you of four simple truths as we close this series out. Number one, we are all sinners and that's why we need a savior. Why spend seven weeks talking about sin? Because seven weeks remind us that while we are terrible, broken down, dysfunctional people because of our sin, we have a great savior. Amen? He's a glorious one. He's the wonderful one. He's the perfect one. And he has come and he died on the cross and became sin on our behalf. He became your pride. He became your anger. He became your gluttony. He became your envy. He became your lust so that he might nail that sin, whatever sin you and I are dealing with, to the cross so you and I can be forgiven. And that's why we worship him. And that's why we adore him. He proved his saviorship, if you will. Because Jesus, remember, was tempted but did not succumb to any of these. Listen, Jesus is the saving one because for 33 years he lived on this earth with the body just like ours and he wasn't given to any of these sins. Oh, though he was tempted. So we can find victory just as he did. He did not use any of his superpowers, if you will. To find victory, but prove to us that we can live without sin if we would follow in his steps. 
The Word of God is the only way that we're going to be able to fight sin. Psalm 119.9, how does a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it himself according to the Word of God. And so let me tell you something, your sin problem inevitably starts with a word problem. If you're struggling with sin, it's not that the sin is too great, it's that your appetite for the scriptures is too anemic. And so, if you're dealing with sin, that just tells me, let me tell you something, when I know that I'm not in the word enough, is when my thought life is saturated with all kinds of wrong things. When my perspective gets too big about myself, I haven't spent enough time reading the scriptures that reminds me God is the only one who is great. And so some of us are wondering, well, why do I fall into sin? Well, why aren't you in the Word? And the more you struggle with sin, the more you should be thrown to the Word of God to incline your ears to wisdom. Finally, we must seek help in the fight. When we deal with sin, we must always ask the question, who's there fighting with us? Who's the trusted friend who can speak honestly into our lives? Who's the trusted friend that we can be confident with? I was at a catering job this week at a church, and the pastor knew I was a pastor. And I said, "Hey, brother, how are things going?" We're standing. I just we're standing. I'm next to the grill, and pork chops and chicken are cooking. I said, "How's how's life?" And he says, "Good." And he keeps shaking his head like this. It's good. He says, "No, it's not. It's terrible." He says, "Can I just be real with you, brother? I'm dying." Sin's all over the place. I've lost so many battles this week. Uh, would you just pray for me? And right there, put my arm around the guy next to the grill. I kept my eye, one eye open. I didn't want stuff to burn. But, but I sat there and I prayed with my brother. And he in turn prayed for me. And that's what we need to be doing with one another. The Bible says confess your sins one to another. Why? It reminds us that we're all in the fight. Number two, we need one another to help us because we got blind spots all around us. And so we need brothers and sisters around us. So when we talk about sin, it's a cooperative event. But what the devil says is you leave this place and you tell yourself that you're the only one dealing with the sin. Well, let me tell you something. I struggle with all seven of the deadly sins. So if you struggle... It's good to have you on board with me. Because we're fighting this battle together. And only the proud will say, which is a a deadly sin as well, only the proud would say, I don't deal with that. Well, he'd deal with the first one, which is the mother of all of them. So welcome to the group. We all deal with it, and we all need God's help, and God has called us into community to help one another to that end. And so, we do not celebrate sin here at Village Bible Church. We stand opposed to it, knowing that we have a Savior who has conquered these sins once and for all. And we worship Him as the King of Kings and as the Lord of Lords, who is the only one who can address these sins and who will enable us, by the forgiveness of His blood, to welcome us into eternity. How great of a God do we serve? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this series and all that it's taught us. We thank you for uh, reminding us of our sin. But not, not to, uh, Lord, uh, stand condemning over us. You show us our sin. You show us the disaster that our sin can bring. And then, like a loving father, as we learned today, you show us that we don't have to live that way. 
You teach us wise words, words that that show us that we can go another way. And so, Lord, I pray, just as with every one of the other sins that we've dealt with, that lust is not the only answer. So, Lord, let us turn to you. Let us turn to your word. Let us incline our ear, throw ourselves to that wisdom so that we may not be given to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes but that we may be given wholeheartedly to an allegiance to you and you alone. And that you would reorder our physical desires. You would reorder our sexuality. That you would reorder our sin. And show us the path to everlasting. To show us a path to contentment and joy. To show us the path to real life. Real life in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that over these last seven weeks, it would be a reminder to anybody who has never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ that today is the day of salvation. That people would be drawn after they've been convicted of their sin to the sinless Savior. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for in our chaos that you came and made all things new. We love you for it. And we praise the name of Jesus as a result. Now send us forth from this place to a world that is going to tell us to go every other way but yours. Give us the power and the grace to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts and to pursue righteousness in all that we do. We love you and give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.